So we're going to start this morning with our Wellspring Discipline. So if you would, will you turn your notebooks over? And we're going to talk about why we're here so early on a Saturday morning. We're going to look at uh, our Wellspring purpose. We are here to equip and encourage one another, the women of Grace Bible Church, to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ. And we do that with God's word, with his word, so that, here's the purpose, that we live gospel-transformed lives and then see what it does. It strengthens the church and its gospel purpose. And we focus on three disciplines at well, in Wellspring. The first one is our hearts. Discipline one, the faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of, of God and in particular the gospel. So we're here to encourage one another to care well for our hearts to lead our hearts, to draw near with our hearts to him in his word, to worshipfully pursue God through his word. And you know what? Doesn't it take discipline? It just does. It takes discipline that worship would take place when we read our Bibles. And, uh, you know, when we are disciplined in shepherding our hearts as we meet with him in his word, that's when we are strengthened. That's when our inner man is strengthened. And, and that's when our love and our affection for uh, Jesus grows. And um, uh, you know, shepherding our hearts doesn't end when we close our Bibles, does it? It only begins there. Um, our hearts need shepherding with God's word constantly. It's an ongoing shepherding. It's an ongoing strengthening of our inner man. So I want to see a show of hands um, who isn't busy. <laughs> Not one hand. What does that tell you? Here's a room full of women in different seasons of life. With kids, without kids, married, not married, emptiness. I mean, it just, we, our, our lives are full, right? We have full lives. And sometimes it's easier than others. Sometimes it's really difficult. But I want to encourage you this morning, keep fighting. Keep fighting to make meeting with God in his word a priority. And it just takes discipline. It takes discipline to be purposeful, to be diligent to meet with him. All right, discipline two is all about the relationships within our household, within our home. We'll be focusing on discipline two this morning. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. It can be so easy, you've heard this phrase, it can be so easy to leapfrog over the relationships within our household or with those relationships uh, that are closest to us, um, those people who enter into our household, to get to other things, to get to really, really good things even, right? Um, maybe neglect those relationships in our household in our, or in our homes that, uh, or those that enter there. And we'll see even this morning God's concern. It's God's concern for those relationships. And I just want to remind you, when we talk about household relationships, anytime we talk about discipline two, um, it's for everyone. Discipline two is for everyone, regardless of circumstance, regardless of season of life. There isn't anyone that discipline two doesn't include. Whether you're single, 
whether you live with roommates, whether you live at home, whether you're married, whether you're not married, whether you're with children, whether you're without children, whether you're an empty nester, whether you're a grandparent, whether you're caring for those outside of your home, the principles still apply. There isn't anyone discipline to doesn't include. So whatever circumstance you're in, it's for you. And as ambassadors for Christ, we want to give off an aroma in our household of someone who loves God and meets with him in his word, who delights in him, and then live those gospel-transformed lives there. We want to make an impact there for the gospel, right? I love, and if you guys want to, have you read Scott's prayer? You know that prayer um, that we included that in your notebook this this year? If you want to take a look at it, I think it's in resources. Um, I didn't, I'm not sure where it is. But I'd like to just read one paragraph. If anybody finds it. The very first one. Okay, it's the very first one in resources. Do I see it? This kind of sums up what we're talking about. And I really encourage you to use this prayer, read it, have this kind of mind, not, you know, pray it, maybe not word for word, but, or word for word. But here's here's, um, this prayer. I desire my heart and mind to be full of you because of what these pages reveal to me about you and all your greatness. It's talking about God's word. I long for you to spill out of me into my home. That's discipline too. And wherever you lead me today, all who come into contact with me today must interact with one whose heart has drawn near to you and is striving to obey you. Their best hope for salvation or for growth in the gospel will come from one who has searched for you in your word, gazed upon your son in the gospel, and who walks by your spirit. That's the heart attitude we long for, right? Well, that really sums up discipline three as well. The third discipline is ministry. With a heart fixed on God, on the back of your notebook again, with a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. So this is how we minister the gospel to people in the church, how the body cares for the body to help the body grow. And that's in our small groups and in our relationships with one another and in, in the ne- in Next Generation Ministries and in Wellspring, wherever we are in the church. And this is how we care for those outside of the body, outside of the church as well. So we're going to be stepping into people's lives inside of the church and outside of the church as we continue to grow in these disciplines and practice these disciplines. So even after just two weeks in Wellspring, we're already beginning to see just how critical it is that we care for our hearts with God's word, right? And... um, Like I said, this morning we're going to move into seeing the importance God places on those relationships within our household discipline too. And this morning we're going to see God's inseparable relationship between his word, our hearts, and our homes, the household relationships. And we're going to look at nine categories to help us see God's heart for the household, for those relationships um, that take place in our home. And we're going to survey scripture this morning. We're going to start in the Old Testament, and then we're going to work our way into the New Testament. And we do that because that's how God gradually unfolded uh, his revelation to us 
we want to work our way from the front to the back so we get a full sense of God's heart. The first category we're going to look at this morning is the relationship between the heart. And remember what the heart is, the inner man, all of who we are, and household relationships. So let's start by looking at Exodus 20. Exodus 20, 12. So go ahead and turn there, if you will. As we look at this, we need to remember that Christians are not under Mosaic law. We don't obey the command to honor our father and mother because it's in the Ten Commandments, but we do obey it because Jesus taught it in Matthew 15. And also, when we see a promise in the Old Testament, most often it's referred to uh, Israel. It's given to Israel. And it's not given to Christians unless it's repeated in the New Testament, okay? Um, It doesn't mean, though, this is so important, it doesn't mean that there's no value in Mosaic Law. It does have value because it reveals to us God's heart, right? It reveals to us who he is. All of Scripture is revelation. All of Scripture is profitable. All of Scripture provides examples uh, for us to learn from. And it shows us the character of God. It shows us God's character, and we just don't want to miss that. So we, but we want to obey, we want to obey God for the right reasons under Christ. We exalt Christ because he's greater than Mosaic law. Now, Exodus 20, 12 is, as you see, in the middle of the Ten Commandments. Verse 12 is the fifth commandment. And the first four commandments are concerned with Israel's relationship to God. They're vertical. And then we see a turn, a different focus on the remaining commandments. They're horizontal. So uh, they focus on relationships between people. So we're going to look at those commandments, the commandments that that, uh, focus specifically on household relationships this morning. So let's look at verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. So here he's speaking of the land promised to Israel. So we see the first human household relationship God deals with is the parent-child relationship. The way children are to respond to the parents. They're to show them honor. And then verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. So here we see God's focused on the husband-wife relationship in the home. God provides instruction for that. And then in verse 17, God's concerned that Israel think rightly about their neighbor's household. When he says, you should not covet your neighbor's house, you should not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servants or his female servants or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Israel was to be concerned that they weren't looking wrongly at another person's household. They were to focus on being content in their own household, to think rightly about everything and everyone in and associated with the household. So again, the first four commandments are addressed to Israel's relation is are addressed uh, with Israel's relationship with God, how they relate rightly to him. And then the very next thing, this is so interesting, the very next thing he addresses three times in the last I go like this, three. <laughs> three times in the last six commandments, God deals with the household, household relationships. So as God's giving Mosaic law, he had very specific instructions for the household and those foundational relationships right from the beginning, right? So we see God's priority and what is important to him. All right, let's turn to Deuteronomy 4. 
Deuteronomy 4, starting in verse 9. Now, this is where Moses um, led the Israelites out of Egypt. But remember, they rebelled. They wouldn't go and take possession of the land that God was giving to them. So they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And because of that, they weren't allowed to go into the land until that generation had died off. So now 40 years later, Moses is talking to their children who are now grown, um, who were told originally to honor their parents, and now many of them are parents, and Moses is at the end of his life, and he's reteaching the law before they enter the promised land. So he says, starting in verse 9, only give heed to yourself, and what? Keep your soul diligently. Why? So that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from where? From your heart. All the days of your life. So that's discipline one spelled out for Israel, right? You see that? And then what? Make them known to your sons and your grandsons. So that's discipline two right there. Do you see how he tied, and then do you see how he ties the heart to the household relationships? Remember, and then, oh, let's go on to verse 10. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. So the burden for the Israelite household was for parents to make known to the children what God had done and uh, what he had done in redeeming them from Egypt. That they would take care of their own hearts with his word and teach the next generation teach the children all right deuteronomy 6 let's go to deuteronomy 6 starting in verse 4 he says "Hear, O israel the lord is our god the lord is one you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul and all your might these words which i am commanding you today shall be on your heart Again, there's discipline one. He connects love for him with his word. And then inseparable from discipline one, we see discipline two here. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as signs on your hands and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. He's saying, your household Israel is to be dominated by concern for my word. So God wanted Israel to impress his words on their own hearts, on their own hearts, and then on the hearts of the next generation. How? By living it, living it out on a daily basis, by talking about them, by thinking about them, by being constantly on their minds and on their hearts. The older generation was to constantly model their complete loyalty to God in every way possible. So do you see this inseparable connection between love the Lord your God with all your heart and teach them to your children? All right, let's turn, let's keep going um, to chapter 7 in Deuteronomy. And as we see the influence that our hearts have on our household relationships, we're going to see this passage in this passage that the influence goes both ways. We know that our hearts um, impact and influence our household relationships, right? 
but here we're going to see how those household relationships can, in, in return, in reverse, affect our own hearts. Um, let's look at verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you, and they list seven, list seven nations that are greater and stronger than them. Verse 2, And when the Lord your God delivers them before you, and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, show them no favor. So the Israelites are told that when they enter the promised land, they're to completely destroy the inhabitants. They're to make no treaties with them. They're to show them no mercy. And then verse 3, Furthermore, and this is important. We're going to see this later, how this plays out. You shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why? Well, verse 4, For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them, you shall tear down their altar, smash their sacred pillars, hew down their ashram, and burn their graven image, images with fire. All of their idolatry is to be destroyed. God's telling them that there can be no household in Israel um, where an Israelite marries a foreigner who worships another god. God makes it very clear the kind of household he desires. And this kind of idolatrous household is not to exist in Israel. Why? Verse 4, because hearts get led astray. Hearts get turned away from Yahweh. So the burden in Israel was on the parents to not allow their children in this kind of marriage. To teach them in such a way that their children, the next generation, would want to follow God that they would not want to abandon him. Part of that meant not marrying people who are following other gods. So we see it goes both ways. We know our hearts affect our household relationship, and what's going on in our homes does influence and impact our hearts in the same way that our hearts does influence and impact our homes. Does that make sense? Okay, we'll see the heart's influence again here in our next passage. Turn to Psalm 78. <clears throat> guys hanging in there okay you guys look pretty awake <laughs> psalm 78 so here's an example of the inseparable connection between what we do with our hearts and the impact that it makes on the next generation starting in verse one listen O my people to my instruction incline your ears to the words of my mouth I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from, our, from their children, but tell... Okay, let's count how many generations talking about here. But tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works and all he's done. For he's established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children that the generation to come might know, even yet to be born, that they may arise and tell, tell their children. That's four generations already right there he's talking about. Why? That they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, 
a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So they were not to follow the example of their parents who failed to watch over their hearts, that's discipline one, and quickly forgot about God, and and, uh, they became disloyal to him. He says their hearts were stubborn and rebellious. Here's the father telling his household, household, do not be like the prior generations who did not care, did not shepherd their hearts. Children, do not be like your great-grandparents who did not do this. Isn't that kind of sobering to think that our generation or the next generation would say that about us? We don't want that, right? There's no way. Even though we know this passage is addressed to Israel, uh, we know that there are principles that we can take away as believers today. Uh, Ladies, we need to be convinced. We need to be convinced that God cares for our hearts, and the impact that we make on the next generation. Do you see the main concern there? It's the next generation. All right, let's move into the New Testament now. We're working our way forward, and let's turn to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, and we're going to see again, God addresses this inseparable relationship between the heart and household relationships. This is a repeat of the fifth commandment, now brought under the authority of Christ for his church through the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first command with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Now he addresses fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So first, Paul addresses the children. Obey your parents. And how are they to obey? In the Lord. They're to obey in the Lord, not simply out of fear, of punishment. Um, The motivation for obedience is out of reverential love for God. Children need to be taught to shepherd their hearts well in the gospel. Uh, so as to obey their parents and honor their parents in a way that honors the Lord with, you know, a, a, teaching them like with a right heart attitude as well as right outward, outward action. Now we know that God is sovereign. We know that he is the one who sovereignly does a work in a heart. But it's the parent's responsibility, it's our responsibility to teach them and to shepherd them in the gospel. And I just have to stop and say... In our body, and even in this room, I see so many of you doing that so well. You have done that so well. You continue to do that so well. You're an encouragement to me. You help me and teach me. Because I didn't know this when I was a young mommy. So you guys are, so many of you are just a blessing to to me. And you're teaching me. All right, so parents in particular must be faithful with discipline. Um and instruction in the Lord so as not to frustrate their children. Well, what does that require? It requires a lot of heart shepherding on our parts, right? To not do that. A lot of heart shepherding. That's discipline one, caring well for our hearts. So we see God again is demonstrating now in the New Testament that household relationships matter. They matter to him in Christ. 
You don't need to turn to 1 Timothy 3, but here Paul is instructing uh, Timothy regarding overseers, regarding elders, uh, elder qualifications. And we see that the household is so important to God that in order to be qualified as an overseer in the church, a man must manage his own household well and set an example for the rest of the body. I'll read it for you. He must be one who manages his own household well, um, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household well, how will he take care of the church of God? Again, we see the household relationship, um, how important it is to God. And as you know, as you read your Bible, you can't deny it. You, you cannot deny that God places a high concern on his word, on our hearts, and on our household relationships, right? Do you see that? All right, let's turn to Titus 2 now. You can turn there. Titus 2, and here women are addressed. And there's going to be more teaching on that later. Sarah's going to teach Titus 2, and you are going to be so encouraged. Titus 2, starting in verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women, now see the focus on the household relationships here, to love their husbands, love their children, be sensible and pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Why? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Do you see the main concern there? It's the word of God. A woman's faithfulness in those household, in her household, with those household relationships, it's of great significance in the gospel mission. As a, wo- as a woman cares well for her heart, shepherds her heart faithfully, um, and cares for her household relationships, it impacts the way others speak of God, of God's word. So, After surveying the Old Testament, working our way into the New Testament, how can we not be concerned not only for our own hearts, but also our household relationships, right? How can we not be concerned? Because we see it is very, very important to God. All right, that was all number one on your outline, in case you guys are wondering, like, (laughs) where are we? But I hope it's clear. So let's move on to number two on your outline. And let's look at an Old Testament example of a woman who grasped God's heart for a household. So we're going to turn back and we're going to look at Ruth. So Joshua Joshua judges Ruth. You can find Ruth. Ruth's life took place during a time when there was no king in Israel. It's a time when the judges ruled. And the book of Judges um, ends with these words. Anybody know? Saying if you're awake. Yep. That's the, that was the spiritual climate. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no submission to God, no submission to authority. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And in the midst of this dark period in history, we find Ruth. Her life is a refreshing exception to that. In Ruth 1, we find a man named Elimelech. He takes his wife Naomi and his sons and moves to Moab because of a famine in Israel. 
And then uh, he dies. And after that, ascends marry Moabite women. And then his sons die. So uh, it must have been just a really difficult time. Uh, she heard the famine was over in Israel, and so she's going to head back home. And at first, her daughter-in-laws, they uh, go with her, daughters-in-law go with her. Naomi encourages them to stay there. Stay in Moab with your own people, with your own culture. And one of them, Orpah, agrees to do so. But Ruth, she clings to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And again, Naomi says, you know, go back, go back like your sister-in-law did. Go back to your people. Go back to your Moabite gods. But Ruth responds with this bold declaration of faith in uh, verse 16. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Yeah, she didn't want to stay in Moab. She didn't want to go back to her Moabite gods. Ruth declares that Naomi's God, Yahweh, the one true God of the Bible, is her God. And then listen what she says next. Verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may Yahweh do to me, or worse, if anything but death, parts you and me. So Ruth's prepared to leave her culture. She's prepared to leave her land, her language, and stay with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Ruth's mind, to have Yahweh as her God, meant being devoted to her mother-in-law, to her household, the household that she had. Ruth is a beautiful role model of a woman whose heart was for God first. She demonstrated that by loving her widowed mother-in-law, the same mother-in-law who encouraged her to stay in Moab with her Moabite gods, find a husband there. The mother-in-law who by her own admission was a bitter woman. You see that in verse 20. She returns to her home in Bethlehem and the other women say, is this Naomi? Then in verse 20, Naomi says, do not call me Naomi which means pleasant, but call me Mara, which, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And she's just, she's not just bitter, she's bitter with God. But this proud, bitter woman is family to Ruth. Ruth chooses to love her. Even though she was a foreigner and she had no idea what the future would bring, Ruth, Ruth's love for God drove her to love Naomi. And I wish we had time, but we have to keep moving because, and you can read the rest or you know how Ruth demonstrated uh, for us a love for God and led her to care for her household even when circumstances were extremely difficult and how all of that plays out. But uh, she cared well for the family, um, her family. All right, let's turn, or let's look at uh, number three on your outline. We're going to look at an Old Testament failure to grasp God's heart for the family. <clears throat> All right, you can read the, uh, your own account of Eli and his sons in 1 Samuel 2, but we know Eli failed as a father and as a spiritual leader. God held Eli accountable because for Eli, it was more important for him to please his family, to please his sons, than to honor God. And, you know, I just got to say, with so much emphasis on household relationships, it's important for us to remember that it's not God's desire that we would hold our household relationship, relationships up so high that we would honor our family over God. 
as high as God sets up, sets up the household, and he does, God is always higher. He's always higher. 1 Kings 11, um, we're not going to turn there, but you can read on your own and see Solomon's example of how his heart was turned away from Yahweh. He had wives and concubines from other nations, and uh, he knew what God's commandment was. He still chose to disobey. And the results in verse 4 says his heart turned away, not fully devoted. You can turn to 1 Kings 21. Turn to 1 Kings 21. You know, after seeing um, such a beautiful example of Ruth, who understood God's heart for her household, now we're going to look at a couple of women who did not. We're going to look at Jezebel and Athaliah. And you know, if you've been in Wellspring before, you've heard this, <laughs> you know. And I always think, oh, maybe, maybe we should look at someone else, but how can we not look at this? It is so impactful. And so if you've heard it before, you know, hang in there, listen again, and uh, just pray that you will be um, affected again and see, be sober-minded about it. But here's a little context. God made David king over all of Israel, all of the 12 tribes after the death of Saul. Then David was succeeded by his son Solomon as king, and he was king over all of those tribes. And then after Solomon died, the kingdom was divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom is most often referred to as Judah. And the northern kingdom is usually called Israel. So Israel and Judah. Jezebel comes along about 75 years after the death of Solomon, and Jezebel married uh, King Ahab, and he was of the northern kingdom, and she was a daughter of a foreign king. Is there a problem here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, uh, we, we see back in Deuteronomy 7 that intermarrying with a pagan nation was forbidden, right? But Ahab marries Jezebel, brought her to Israel to be queen, and with her he brought false gods, false idolatrous worship, thus provoking God. So already we see it's not a man or a woman who understands God's heart for marriage and family. And we know that Israel was plagued with idolatry throughout her history, but most of the time they did continue to give God some kind of lip service, but not Jezebel. She wanted to destroy worship of Yahweh. In 1 Kings 21, 4, Jezebel finds out that her husband is sullen and vexed. He's resentful and angry. Basically, he's throwing a temper tantrum. He's pouting. He is just, you know, here's this king, and he's acting like a little child. And the reason why is because this man Naboth wouldn't sell him his vineyard. And out of obedience to the Lord, Naboth said no. You know, so Naboth stood firm, but Ahab, and what is Ahab doing? He's coveting his neighbor's vineyard, and uh, Jezebel schemes to get the people to kill Naboth so that Ahab can go and steal his vineyard. Now, the thing is, in Israel, the land was supposed to stay in uh, the, the family from generation to generation. Um, so Naboth is being obedient to the Lord, saying no, but Jezebel has no regard for that. The ways of God, no regard for the home, no regard for the family. It's trivial for her to murder, to get his land, to rob his family of their inheritance. And in 1 Kings 21-25, we see 
uh, the commentary on Ahab after this. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil. He sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Why? Because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. Stop and think about that. This one woman, Jezebel, she's responsible, responsible for bell worship in Israel, persecution of God's prophets, murder of Naboth, robbery of a family's inheritance, inciting a king, her husband, to do evil, using and abusing her influence in her home, right? But sadly, that is just not the end. Ahab and Jezebel, they have a daughter. Her name is Athaliah, and Athaliah married Jehoram, a king in the southern kingdom. Now remember, her father, Ahab, was a king in the northern kingdom. So sadly, her mother, Jezebel's influence, spread through to her daughter. We see in Second King, uh, Kings 8.18, you don't need to turn there, but Jehoram did evil in the sight of the Lord because of his wife, Athaliah. So now we see a husband doing evil because of his wife, who had in because of his wife, who had been influenced by her mother, Jezebel. And what kind of evil did he do? Well, Second Chronicles twenty one four tells us that when he had taken over the kingdom as his father, what did he do? Do you remember? He killed all of his brothers. He killed all of his brothers. And then Jehoram and Athaliah they had a son, Ahaziah. In 2 Kings 8.27, we see he also did evil in the sight of the Lord because of his connection with his mother's family. It's kind of hard to keep straight, right? But so far we see Jezebel's evil influence on Ahab, the king of Israel, her disregard for Naboth and his family. We saw the evil influence passed on to her daughter, Athaliah, who had an evil influence on her husband, the king of Judah. And now we see it extended to Athaliah's son as well. A corrupted husband, murder, robbery, corrupted children, a man murdering his own brothers, more corruption of husband and children. I mean, really, it's just the exact opposite of God's heart for the home, right? And for the household relationships. We've seen in his word that the home is to be a place where his name is declared, where his mighty works are remembered and they're taught and they're praised. When one generation exhorts another generation to love God and to obey him. But this family has turned the home into a place that spawns evil even against one another. They rejected anything that had to do with God's heart for the household. And it keeps going. We're not done. Turn to 2 Kings 11.1, 1, please. Now, in 2 Kings 10... Athaliah's son, King Ahaziah, is killed. Now read with me what happens next in 2 Kings 11.1. 1. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her sons were dead, she rose and destroyed all her royal offspring. Do you know what this is saying? This is a grandmother who murdered her grandchildren. Stop and think about that. Athaliah annihilated her grandchildren. Why? So she could be in control. So she could be in charge. She wanted to rule. She wanted the throne. It's so easy for us to think, like, that is so crazy, right? How could someone do that? 
Jezebel and Athaliah are way more sinful than we are, right? Well, there's no way I could do anything like that. Maybe not to that extreme. But really, if we stop and we think about it, maybe we'll see areas in our own life where we can relate. Maybe sin in our own life. Remember, even though God has given us new hearts, we're in a mixed condition. Remember the chart? We're not who we were in a in an uh, uh, unmixed condition. We're not who we once were, and we're not where we will be, but right here we're in a mixed condition, right? We still battle sin. We still battle sin. There's still a residue of sin today. And I know, you know, I know, I'll just say, I know for me there are times in my household when I want to rule, when I want my own way to grasp after what I want, to rule my little kingdom and throne, maybe even sin to get it. And that's idolatry. So, see, we can still struggle with the same thing, the same sin, and it's destructive. So, ladies, we, we got to guard our hearts. We must guard our hearts above all else, our new hearts in their mixed condition. And, you know, lay them bare before God. Plead for a heart for our household that aligns with God's desire over our own desire. I think it's important to remember this, that um, we will, we do have an impact in our household. We do. But the question is, what kind of impact? What kind of impact do we have? Maybe that's a good question to throw on your homework. We started with looking at the relationship between the heart and household relationships in Scripture. Then we saw the way Ruth's heart for God impacted her household in a beautiful way. And we've seen just how destructive it is when rejection of God's heart for the household is, just how destructive that is. And uh, let's move on now to number four in our outline, the ease at which God is forgotten in the home. Number four, so let's go back now. We're going back to the Old Testament to Deuteronomy 8. We were in the Old Testament, but we're going to Deuteronomy 8. So as you're turning there, here's a little context. We're back on the plains of Moab where Moses is reteaching the law to Israel. This is just 40 years after they left slavery in Egypt. And this is uh, Moses' warning to the Israelites. He says in verse 10, When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he is giving you. So here's the warning now. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. How? By not keep, or will know by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. So he's telling Israel, you know, when you're enjoying the blessings that God is giving you and all things are going well, he says, beware. Beware. It's a time to be concerned. That's when you'll be tempted to forget God. And, you know, this isn't a, a failing to recall that he exists, it's acting as though he doesn't. It's not about forgetting that he exists. It's acting as though he doesn't exist. Verse 12, we'll go on. Lest when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies, 
here's the warning, then your heart becomes proud. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God's warning them ahead of time. The household that God is giving them, where there's blessing, where he's blessing them so richly, um, it's when they needed to be aware of the danger they were in. They're in a danger. They're in danger. They needed to guard against pride, to guard against forgetting who their provider was and what he had done for them. And we need to be aware of the danger and guard our hearts of the very same thing, to guard against pride, forget our provider, uh, God, especially when things are going well in our household. That's when we'll be tempted. And thankfully in Christ, our household become a, can become a platform for impacting everyone who lives there, everyone who enters into our home with the gospel. Whether it's prosperity or and hardship, and uh, regardless of season of life, regardless of circumstance, we must never forget his provision. For us, the provision of our highest treasure is Christ. So we don't want to forget God in our households. Number five on your outline, the impact of one's faith on the entire household. And we're not going to look at Acts 10 this morning. Uh, but I encourage you to read about Cornelius on his own, on your own. Um, but let's take a look at Acts 16. <clears throat> this is where Paul and Silas, they were traveling from city to, uh, city to city in Europe and Asia, strengthening the churches. They come to Philippi, and here's where we read about Lydia. Starting uh, in verse 13, Luke says, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of pur purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, if you judge me to be a believer, come into my house and stay. So Lydia believed in the God of Israel. God divinely brings Paul and Silas to her where she and her household were gathered. They were gathered for prayer. And verse 14 tells us that the Lord opened her heart to the things spoken by Paul. So we can conclude that Lydia already believed in Messiah anticipated and most likely told her that Messiah has come. And so her faith was transferred from Messiah anticipated to Messiah known. As a believer in God, we see she already understood the concern she was to have in her household. She would have known the scriptures. And we see that she had a connection with her household and that they were there with her when Paul spoke, and we know that their faith also was transferred from Messiah anticipated to Messiah known from verse 15, her household was baptized. So we see Lydia's concern from the very beginning for her household and the impact of her faith. Um, let's keep going and let's look down at verse 29 and we'll see the same thing with the Philippian jailer. I love this. This is so amazing. Sometime later, Paul and Silas, <clears throat> they're thrown in jail. 
because of a big uprising in Philippi beginning in Acts 16, 19. This is where they had received severe beatings. They were in a dark, smelly prison. Their feet were clamped into stocks, so they couldn't move. They couldn't get comfortable. They were, they were bloody, broken, bruised men in great pain. And remember, what do we find them doing? Were they grumbling? <laughs> were they complaining? Like, I think maybe I would be tempted to do. I don't know. Uh, no, they were singing. They were worshiping God. And Scott, I love what Scott says on this passage. He says, the best missionaries are undetoured worshipers. The one who is most captivated by the love of God will be most effective in being used by God. Ugh. The one who is most captivated by the love of God will be most effective in being used by God. Because that's what will spill out, right? So, they're in this prison. There's a violent earthquake. All the doors are open. The prisoners' chains came loose, all serving God's purpose, right, for his servants. The Philippian jailer assumes that everyone's escaped, which would have meant he would have been executed as a consequence for failing his duties as a jailer. So he's about to kill himself, and Paul calls out and assures him, do yourself no harm. We're all here. So here again, Paul's showing compassion on this jailer, and the jailer then asks the only reasonable question after witnessing what just took place. I mean, think about that. Think about what happened. The jailer calls out, and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's the most important question to be asked, right? He didn't say, oh my goodness, what in the world just happened? He knew. He knew what happened. What must I do to be saved? And how did they answer? Verse 31, they said, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all were in his house. So he brings the prisoners um, into his household um, and we see the jailer's connection to his household because they're there by verse 32. And they heard the answer to the question as well, what must I do to be saved? And that night a household was changed forever. Verse 33, he took them in that very hour of the night and he washed their wounds. He went from fastening their feet into the stocks to showing compassion to, to them. And immediately he was baptized, he and his household. They brought them in to his house, set food before them, rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. I mean, what seemed like something so terrible that was about to happen to Paul and Silas was actually God's plan all along to bring the gospel to the jailer and to save him and his household. So we see how God can use just one person seeking after the Lord, being saved, how that made an entire, uh, an impact on us and saved his uh, entire household by God's grace. God wants us to bring the gospel into our homes, right? We see that we're ambassadors for Christ. Um, and to do this effectively, we must be sure that we're soaking in the gospel daily to be the hands and feet of Christ to those in our household and those who enter into our household and those who are in our sphere of influence because we love the Lord Jesus Christ and because we love his word. 
That's why we talk about discipline one and the discipline so much because it just does require daily dependence on him and heart shepherding and you know to humbly ask Lord if you would be pleased to change my whole household or continue to sanctify my household because of what you've done in me and through me you know I want to I want to be your slave to that end putting ourselves under his word living as his slave in our household worshiping God regardless of our circumstance but you know what there there really is an attack on the household that's number six on your outline let's go to second Timothy 3 Second Timothy 3. Now, should it surprise us that there would actually be an attack on the household? If there's this kind of link between our hearts, God's word, and our household, and what God's accomplishing there, we shouldn't be surprised that the home is really a place of attack. Second Timothy 3, starting in verse 1, but realize this. That in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. And again, we see concern for the household relationship, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, and it goes on, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Why? Verse 6. For among them there are those who enter into households, and what do they do in those households? Captivate weak women. And then we see what, what characterizes this weakness. They're weak because they are weighed down with sin, Sins led on by various impulses. These are women who, verse 7 says, they're always learning. They're never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Evidently, there are women in these homes. They don't know how the word of God, how the gospel addresses their sin and their weakness. Therefore, they're still weighed down by their sin and their various impulses. They're weak. They're susceptible they're being led by their impulses and led by their desires. They weren't equipped well to know how to deal with their sin, how to deal with those impulses and desires with the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel and the realities of the gospel's impact. Since they're always learning something, but it looks like it's not heart impacting learning. They're not heart shepherding to the word of God learning. So they're vulnerable to attack. I mean, think about that. That's a pretty sober warning for us. We have to be vigilant because attacks against the Christian household often come disguised to look benign, to look harmless. So let's think about who or what might be creeping into our homes, in our day, in our generation. I mean, our culture has a really loud voice, strong, loud voice. It keeps getting louder, saying, you know, it comes to us in our TVs and the blogs and social media and books and magazines and what about the educational system? Telling us to give in to our impulses, give in to our desires, telling us to be a lover of self. There's a self-centered, self-seeking, self-absorbed message saying, 
that's how you solve your problems. There's no gospel answers, no gospel power, even a lot of materials that even, and sermons that cloak themselves with the word Christian. We have to be careful. We have to be careful. We have to scrutinize everything we read, everything we listen to and watch, and put it all under the authority of God's word. We live in a pleasure-seeking, worshiping kind of world, self-worshipping, and and then you put that on our own hearts that are deceived, and we're vulnerable. So we have to be careful. We don't want to be weak and follow along. When we are tempted to follow along, not realizing that in so doing, we're missing the ultimate pleasure found in him, the ultimate pleasure in knowing Christ. We need to guard We need to guard what we're keeping out and be purposeful with what we're putting in. Guard what we're keeping out and be purposeful with what we're putting in. And it's really why we spend so much time on Discipline One because if we don't understand why and how to shepherd our hearts to Jesus Christ through his word, if we don't use God's truth and the gospel to fuel and grow in holiness and to delight in him and in our repentance, what can happen? We too can become weak. We can be weak women. And you know what can happen? We too can pose a threat to our households, to our church, to the gospel mission. So this is serious. And it doesn't just, it's, it's not just about us. We're talking about the next generation. We're talking about the church and the gospel mission. This is serious. We, too, can be vulnerable to believing lies, to drinking the world's Kool-Aid about whatever message they have, and then passing it right along to those closest to us. So this is a strong warning. We've got to guard, and we need to care and protect those who live in our households and care and protect those who enter into our household. And you know what? I see so many of you doing this so well. You, you do it well, but we still need to hear and heed this warning to just be aware to be on guard. All right, here's another thing we need to guard against. We need to guard against exalting the household relationships above the gospel. Turn to Matthew 10, and we're going to look at number 7 on your outline. The family or the home can become an obstacle to the gospel. Excuse me. Matthew 10. Starting in verse 34, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Verse 37, For he who loves father more, father or mother more than me, is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Basically, Jesus is saying that our identity in Christ is first and most important. Jesus makes a strong point that the gospel and his kingdom is first and everything else and everyone else is second, including our family. 
He wants our hearts first. He wants our hearts foremost. That's discipline one. And we want to be in, agree in agreement with God, right? We don't want to lift up the household above the gospel. We want to have things in right priority, not lift up household relationships higher than they should be. You know, here's an example. Say in a household the gospel invades one person, and that person is transformed. And then she's called to bring the gospel to the rest of her family. And sometimes other family members are saved, or a whole household is saved by God's grace, like Lydia, the Philippian jailer, as she brings the gospel to that household. That's, that's always in the Lord's hands, right? But Jesus is teaching here that it, it's not always the case. For some of us, we might actually find that our family becomes divided. We have peace with God through Christ when he saved us. However, it doesn't mean we have peace with everyone else. There, there, there may be conflict in our household. I've experienced this. Maybe some of you have too, or you are experiencing it, and it's difficult. It's very difficult. But if the family begins to stand in the way of the gospel, believers are to follow Christ. They're to follow Christ. Even, okay, here, get this, and I want you to hear this, even while staying in the family, even while staying in the household, as she displays the changes Christ has made in her, as she loves her family and serves her family, forgives her family, as she seeks forgiveness in that family, humbly, as she humbly submits appropriately, she needs, uh, or we need to keep reminding ourselves, I belong to Christ. I'm a slave of Christ. My identity is in Christ first, not in the roles I have in my household and with other family members. Our identity is in, Christ, in Christ is greater than any household family identity. And, you know, <clears throat> because of that identity that we have in Christ, it's, it's why and how we can love and esteem and serve those closest to us. Get this regardless of their reaction, regardless of how they respond, because the gospel's impact, because of the gospel's impact in our lives, we have, we're, we have God's power. We're no longer slaves to our sin. We see God places a huge priority on the household, and so should we, but never above our identity in Christ. Never. Gospel supreme, not family. <clears throat> For us, in my family, we have family members of a different religion, of a, of a false religion, where at times, um, especially when our kids were young, we had to make some hard decisions. And we, we had to love them with grace, and, but we had to make those decisions um, because we're Christ's first. And it's a sweet opportunity to pray um, when we have interaction so that our heart is right and to remember uh, I was there. It's only by God's grace that I'm not there now, that I'm not uh, an unbeliever too. Only because God saved me can I even have eyes to see and can I love with the love of Christ. So see it as a gospel opportunity. There's no better way to love those in our household uh, than to keep our affections for Christ first in our hearts. And the gospel enables you to love and to shine the light of Jesus in the midst of your family, even if you're the only believer there. You can. Is it easy? Not always, but you can. All right, turn to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, and we're on number 8 on your outline. 
and we're going to talk about another household relationship. Submission to a husband requires a strong grasp on the gospel. I realize in this room that not all of you are married. Some of you have never been married. Some of you have been married and are no longer married. Um, We have seen in our body over the last few years just how quickly seasons and circumstances change. But I want to remind you, God doesn't change. His design for marriage doesn't change. His word doesn't change. So whether we're married or not, our understanding of biblical marriage is so important. We all must understand biblical marriage. It's so important to uphold biblical marriage as, as you encourage other married women, even if you're not married, you can encourage other married women, um, as you encourage and teach the next generation, right? Your children, grandchildren, next generation ministries, um, as we encourage one another. Here, here's the thing. Again, our culture fights against a biblical marriage right? Uh, They make a mockery. They try to make a mockery out of Christian marriage. So it's our responsibility to see the beauty of the gospel portrayed in biblical marriage and Christian marriage. In Ephesians 5.22, we see God's instruction for the household relationship in marriage. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. How? As to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as Christ is subject, or as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. So when we think about marriage, we're to think about Christ and the church. Understanding submission changes from being that nails down the chalkboard dreaded word some that some people think it is. It's not. It's not. It's a beautiful word picture of how Christ again and again submitted himself to the will of the Father, just as husbands are to submit themselves to the headship of the Lord, and wives are to submit themselves to their husbands. It's a beautiful thing. It's not a terrible thing. We're to submit to Christ in everything. A wife looks beyond her husband to Christ. Out of reverence for Jesus in light of all that he's done for us and in us, through the gospel, we submit to Christ and wives are to submit to their husbands. In in a marriage relationship, the husband's a leader and when we struggle to trust our earthly leader, we can still follow him because our heavenly leader, Jesus, is always trustworthy. Can we not encourage one another with that? Jesus is always trustworthy. He's sovereign. He's good. And that is where we rest our confidence in submitting to our husbands. For those of us who are married and to those of us who need to encourage others. We, And when we... Um, uh, we, we all need to treasure Christ. We need to support and build up biblical marriage and how we think about it, how we talk about marriage, how we respond to marriage, how we talk about our husbands 
or anyone else's. There'll be more teaching on that later also from Titus 2, so I look forward to hearing that and being encouraged in that. So finally, number nine on the outline. Are you guys cold or hot? It's warm. <laughs> that Whew. Just a moment. I'm just going <laughs> to... Okay. Let's um, take a look at Priscilla... Or, well... Uh, Priscilla and Aquila's marriage is a great New Testament model. They serve together with Paul, and you really can read that on your own. Um, but as we wrap up, what do we see in all of this? <sighs> it's been a lot, right? But we've seen God's inseparable, inseparable relationship between his word, our hearts, and our household relationships that... God places a high priority on influencing our household with his word and the gospel. We've seen that as a faithful believer in the gospel, that we are to bring a gospel aroma to the rest of our household to guard our hearts and to protect, to protect our household, to root out false thinking or any unbiblical thinking. Any thinking, thinking that could come in and deceive us, negatively influence our household and our families. Do you guys see how much is at stake as we think about the next generation, as we think about the reputation of God's word? Our obedience in our homes is essential for exalting God's design and his gospel work. And you know, our household relationships can be a place of, of our biggest failures, right? My household is often the place of my greatest failures and deepest regrets because of my own sin. As I live as a sinner saved by God's grace, I'm living with another sinner now saved by God's grace. There are times when I can be provoking. I can seek control. I want to rule others. I want my own way. Um, as I look back on my life, I have so many regrets. And if you do too, be encouraged with me, okay? Be encouraged. We don't lose hope. It's not too late. It's never too late as long as we have breath. Our homes are the perfect showcase for the gospel in you and through you, even now, even today. This is where we seek forgiveness. This is where we extend forgiveness. It's where we love, where we serve, those whom God has in your home today or who's entering into your home. It's God's grace to us that he would bring us, really, to the end of ourselves. It's his kindness so that he gets all the glory for the work he's doing in us as we grow in this, as we grow in being a gospel aroma in our homes. There's not one of us who have this wired. We don't have it wired. We're growing. We're being sanctified. You know, on that chart, there's like the, the dark gray and, and then it keeps turning to a brighter yellow. We're being sanctified. We're growing in this. We can grow to trust our trustworthy Savior in our household regardless, regardless of how others respond. Regardless of how others respond. Regardless of what your household is made up of. The gospel is that powerful 
It enables us to love the people in our household and love those who enter in or those in our, in our sphere. So as we look at what God's word says about the home, you know what? It just might re- expose regret and failure. I expose sin. But here's the deal. When God exposes sin, believer, be thankful. Be thankful. It's for the purpose of restoration with him and with others. That's his grace to us. And it's good. So what do we do? Well, we plead with God to develop his love in our hearts, to be undetoured worshipers in our homes. And it just doesn't happen. It takes discipline. It takes discipline. Knowing his inseparable relationship between his word, our hearts, and our homes, let's encourage one another to just take advantage of every opportunity that God gives us to love, to care for those in our household, with those who enter into our households, as we seek to display the gospel's impact in our own hearts. Let's pray. Oh, Father, our hope is in you. Thank you for lavishing your love upon us. Thank you for giving us hearts that desire to honor you. Lord, I pray for each and every woman here and for their household and household relationships, whether it's caring for others outside of the home or caring for those inside of our home, Lord. We pray that we would see and be sober-minded and see how important our household relationships are to you and to um, just the, um, that we would care for the next generation and teach of your goodness and of your gospel. Lord, would you do a mighty work in each one of our hearts and in our households. As we go to discussion groups, Lord, I pray that we would encourage one another, that it would be a sweet time, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, um, I want to just bring attention to um, the homework here. The the second um, the second question on the on your homework on the first page is um, something that I want you to give some thought to and prayer to. It says, how do you influence the people who live in your home or who visit your home with God's word? It may be helpful to ask someone in your home, so if you're married, parent, child, roommate, husband, um, or frequent guest, uh, what he, she thinks of your overall influence on the spiritual climate of your home. So um, I encourage you, prepare your heart for those answers ahead of time. Be ready, be humble be ready because um, you'll benefit from it so be ready to hear what they have to say if my husband's like yeah it's all great I'm like no (laughs) I know (laughs) I know there are areas please tell me because I want to grow I want to know so I can grow I mean we all have blind spots right so we want to know what it is where where we need to grow Um, so ask for suggestions on what you need to do or change to be more Christ-like. That's the goal, is to be more like Christ. So I encourage you to take a look at these questions, prepare your heart, and you'll benefit. Thank you, guys.